family live in the Washington, D.C. area. My sister, she lives in Oakland, and my mother lives there, and, and we live here, obviously, here in Rochester, Minnesota. And so we all converged in Lake Tahoe, and we're together, all 13 of us. And uh, the first kind of true day where everyone had kind of come in, we all kind of caught our breath, it was a Sunday afternoon. And we decided we were going to go to the beach. And so we went to this particular beach. It's called Zephyr Cove. The, the uh, screen up here on the left is kind of the big overview of what the whole beach looks like. The, there's a, you can see that kind of riverboat uh, with a pier coming out there. And that's kind of the north half above that and the south half is below it. So this was a Sunday afternoon. And it was packed. Uh, it was 80 degrees. You know, the whole beach was just full of people. And as we tried to, you know, bring our crew in, we had rented this big, huge SUV. My brother and I rented this big SUV that seated about eight people because there were 13 of us. And so, um, but we couldn't find a place in the parking lot. So I had to drop off the crew and then I drove out up on the highway, probably up where oh, I don't know, almost where that ridge is, and had to park out there. So I was a, I was a good, you know, ways away. And this new uh, SUV had a, you know, electronic start. You know, there's no key. It's just the little fob, and you push the button and all that, and it's all fancy schmancy. And so, you know, it was pretty cool. Had more bells and whistles than I ever knew what I could do with. You know, I had to leave like a seat cooler. It was crazy. But anyway, too much information. I get it. But, you know, so but I've got to hoof it back to where we've set up camp, which is in the south end of, of this beach, of course. So I'm, I'm a good mile plus away, right? And so, you know, I'm packed, <clears throat> I'm packed, you know, uh, sufficiently. I've got my fanny pack here. That's right. Unfashionable, but fabulously functional. And it can fit a beach towel and a Bible in it, you know. And I've got my little carabiner, you know, and I put, I put the, the keys on there, the little fob thing there on there, you know, and so I'm, I'm going down there. Also, you know, it's, it's 7,000 know, feet there and I need to keep hydrated. So I got my water bottle, right? So I'm trucking along about midway through the, this trek, you know, I decide that I'm going to click my water bottle onto the carabiner with my, with my keys, right? So I do this and I keep going, right? And once I get to camp where we had set up, I realize where are the keys? Where is this, you know, electronic fob thing? And if you know how much that costs, that's like $350 to replace that thing. I am 60 miles away from where I rented this. The place where we're staying is a good 20, 25 minutes away. I mean, we're stuck and I am panicked. So I go back and I start searching. I mean, I, retracing my steps, I walk all the way back to the vehicle to make sure that somehow I didn't lock, you know, the thing inside of there. And then I just retraced the whole trail and I'm talking to people. Have you seen this electronic thing? Have you seen this? Have you seen? I mean, I am going nuts. I'm just frantic. And, you know, I'm out there for a good two, one and a half hours. My sister kind of comes out there and says, are you doing okay? You know, <laughs> no, I'm not. And she starts looking with me, you know, and I'm just, I'm just going nuts and I don't know what I'm going to do. 
And finally, you know, and I had stopped. There's a, a boat house there, you know, where you can rent boats, and, and and there's a lodge. And I went up and checked the lost and found on the lodge. I mean, I'm I'm combing. I'm I'm sifting through the sand where I think I put the you know the water bottle on. I'm just going because I'm certain that's where it happened. And finally, I you know I go okay. The last thing I'm going to do. Okay, let's just head back to you know where we're hanging out. And I said, but I'm going to check. I'm going to check in the open air bar here and see if anyone's turned it in. And as I walked in, as ESPN was on here, I looked behind the bartender and there on the counter was the fob, the keys. And I said, sir, those are mine. (laughs) And I testified in the bar, I said, there is a God who answers prayer and is concerned about lost things. That was my testimony in the bar. Today, we're going to see Jesus interacts with some religious experts. And he helps to show them that God is concerned. The God that they worship is concerned about lost things. He's concerned about lost people. So we're going to see God's heart today. Let me pray for us first, and then we'll get into God's Word. So Father... Once again, I thank you for showing me those keys at that moment and meeting me in that moment. But I thank you that you are a God that comes to seek and save us. And would you open our eyes to what you have for us in your word today and give us grace to receive and respond to you. So Lord Jesus, it's in your name I pray these things. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. 15. And we're going to be reading just the first 10 verses today. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners to eat with him. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me! I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does, doesn't she take a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Here's the big picture message of what Jesus is trying to tell us. God has a heart for lost people. God has a heart for lost people. And spoiler alert, every one of us is lost. Every one of us is lost. First thing I want you to see that Jesus embodies God's heart for the lost. Verse 1. 
Jesus is God in the flesh, the Savior of the world, and he goes to those who know they need saving. In fact, they are attracted to him. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around him. Now, we may not think very much about that, but, you know, the IRS person today, none of us are really excited about giving up our, our money to the tax man. We may like, feel like we're being robbed. But a first century tax man, that's what is actually happening. Oftentimes you were being extorted. You were being robbed. You see, the Romans, when they controlled the area, they didn't collect taxes themselves. They hired a local to do it. And that person had a certain quota he needed to meet. And after that, he could take whatever he wanted after that. He was there. He could take whatever he wanted. You know that plow? That's going to be 50 shekels. What? 50 shekels? That's what I paid for it. I don't care. Other people who were sinners, perhaps prostitutes, drunks, or just common folk that weren't very religious. But the point is that Jesus goes to these people and they were outcasts to good Jewish society. He went to them because no one else would go to them. You don't hang out with those sinners. They're to be avoided. They're to be shunned. You know, the thing is, is that these people who are shunned, he gives them hope. He gives them hope that, you know, God's not done with you. Because, you know, according to society, he is. And Jesus, he doesn't soften his message. He doesn't, you know, he's the son of God. But he engages them. He talks to them. He even eats with them, which was a sign of fellowship, of acceptance. God, indeed, is a source of all justice. And he will punish sin. But God is also a God of love who has made mankind in his image, who has compassion and mercy and wants men and women to be res- restored and redeemed to himself. So Jesus is there on this redemption mission. They knew they were sinners. They knew they were separated from God. But they're hearing this good news. You know, God actually wants you back. He wants you to be reconciled to him. He wants you to be forgiven. He wants you to be his own. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if you felt like you've been completely shunned and shoved out of the community of faith that God actually wants me? He wants me back. He wants me in relationship with him. That's good news. It's not without controversy, though. (laughs) Not without controversy, as we've already seen if we read through the passage. It's not the first time Jesus does this or the last time we're going to see this in the Gospel of Luke. But earlier when Jesus calls this man named Levi or Matthew to become his follower who happens to be a tax collector, he said, what are you doing, Jesus? Why are you hanging out with these people? This is his answer. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, Jesus, the Savior, God in the flesh, 
does what God in the flesh, the Savior, does. He goes to those who know they need a Savior, who know they need to be saved. He embodies God's heart for the lost. That's why they're attracted to him. And notice, in contrast, the Pharisees and the scribes are blinded to God's heart. Verse 2. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. They grumbled. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You know, that word muttering there is the same words that are used to describe what the children of Israel did in the wilderness in Exodus and Numbers. They grumbled against God. Why did you bring us out here? What are you doing? They're questioning what God is doing. And why were they? Why why were they upset? Were they jealous? Because, hey, Jesus, we're the real spiritual people. You're the ones, we're the ones you should be paying attention to. Were they jealous? Were they hurt? Do you know how much that tax collector charged me? How could you how could you have even a relationship with that guy? I don't know. Maybe they just thought it was not fair. I don't know. I think the biggest issue though is just their worldview. Because they believed following God was all about keeping the rules. It was all about keeping the rules. It was their worldview, and it was their relationship with God. I'm as close to God as I am in my ability to keep His law. That's what it was based on. And there's nothing worse, there's nothing worse for a rule keeper than to see somebody who's not keeping the rules and them not getting punished for it. That just drives them crazy. Their delight, these religious experts, their delight is not in seeing these sinners being found and repenting and being restored. It's rather taking delight in the thought of their coming judgment. In my study this week, I came across this first century rabbinical prayer. Listen to it. It's interesting. I thank you, Lord my God, that you have set my portion with those who sit in the sanctuary, not with those who sit on the street corners. I rise early, and they rise early. I rise to attend the word of the Torah, and they to attend to futile things. I exert myself, and they exert themselves. I exert myself to receive reward, and they exert themselves to receive no reward. I run, and they run. I run to life in the world to come, and they run to the pit of destruction. Now, if you just examine that text for the contrast between those who are trusting God and those who are not, it's probably accurate. But the attitude behind it, it smacks of self-righteousness. It smacks of a thought that I am superior to another. And there's something in the heart of us somehow that enjoys a sense of moral superiority. To stand in judgment over another. 
somehow we want the guilty to get theirs. And there's something that is right about that, and there's something that's perverse about that. Have you noticed that we live in a pretty vengeful society? Have you noticed that? I mean, just look on social media. <laughs> if someone makes an inappropriate statement, who's the head of a company or, or anything, we clamor for their firing. We clamor for their punishment. If you hang out with the wrong person even, boy, you just get hammered. You get lambasted by social media. I wonder how Jesus would have dealt with social media. Because the Pharisees would have just killed him on social media. Can you believe he's hanging out with them? There's a critical spirit a judgmental spirit. The problem is these religious experts, they'd forgotten. They were blind to God's heart for the lost. Let me read these words from Ezekiel 33, 11. He says, Say to them, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. Turn. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? God's heart is for the, for the sinner to turn back towards Him, to repent. But these religious experts, somehow they get caught up in their own little world and they can't see God's heart. They can't see what God might want to do. And I just ask the question, how about you? How about me? When we see someone stumble, or make a terrible public gaffe, or sin terribly, or break the rules, is your immediate thought, boy, I hope he gets her, his. I hope she gets what's coming to her. We want retribution. We want accountability, which has now become a code word for I hope they get the smackdown. Or does your heart go out to that person to think about <laughs> the place where they are stuck, where they are broken, where they are in the bonds of sin. Their actions are heading down a pathway of self-destruction and they need to be released by what only God can release. Do we have that kind of heart towards that person? And, and let's face it, when a person is generally publicly remorseful, that helps, right? Certainly does. But if our only desire is punitive, we may come face to face with our own guilt. And we may also miss God's heart. God's heart for others and God's heart for ourselves. And so Jesus tells three parables in this chapter. We're only going to look at two. But indeed, these are here to help us understand God's heart. First of all, God's heart is ex 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 <laughs> God's heart extraordinarily pursues us. Look at verse 4. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. 
Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now the concept of God as our shepherd, it's all throughout the scriptures. All throughout the scripture. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm uh, 103 where it says, we are the sheep of his pasture. Uh, Isaiah 40, 11, where it talks about he gathers the lambs in his arms and he leads the nursing ewes gently. But somewhere along the way in God's economy and in God's people, he installs his representatives in charge in the the people of Israel was prophets, kings, priests. People who were supposed to shepherd his people. But if you know the history of Israel, eventually they fail. They start going to their own self-interest. And this is what he says in the next chapter of Ezekiel, by the way. Chapter 43, 1-6. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat curds and clothe yourself with the wool and, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered all over the mountains and on every hill, every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. And here's the rub. At this time in Jewish history, these Pharisees, these scribes, these experts in the law, they considered themselves the shepherds of Israel. They considered themselves the spiritual leaders. The problem was history was repeating itself. And all they were all too content to watch God's people wander. They wouldn't go after them, and they didn't have God's heart for them. And God himself has to come after them. God himself has to come as the shepherd. Ezekiel 34, 11 through 12. For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them as a shepherd looked after his scattered flock. And when he has, and when he has, uh, scattered, sorry, as a shepherd after his scattered flock when he is with them. So I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on the day the cloud, um, of the clouds and darkness. This is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus comes, as he calls himself, the good shepherd. And in this parable, the shepherd has an extravagant pursuit. First of all, it's not efficient. It's not efficient. One sheep out of a hundred, we lost one sheep out of a hundred, that's one percent. Time is money, right? Time is money. Ah, 
It's just one out of a hundred. You know, we'll probably replace it by the next breeding season. Don't bother. Don't bother. It can be easily be replaced. Cut your losses. That's good business practice, right? But not this shepherd. Not this shepherd. His practice is also not prudent, right? Let me read verse 4 again. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? The answer is no. You don't do that. You don't leave your 99 sheep out in the open country to go find one lost sheep. That doesn't make sense. What, what, what if some other animal comes and harasses and you scatter these sheep? That is, that is nuts. You know, a first century shepherd wouldn't do this. But what Jesus is saying, I as a shepherd will do this. And this is not to illustrate that God is careless with his people. Rather, it's to illustrate that he is extravagant. And he goes to extravagant measures to find his lost sheep. He's not waiting for that sheep to come back to him. It's lost. It's lost. He's going to go out and seek it out. And when he finds it, he's going to receive it with joy. He's going to put it up on his shoulders. He's not going to sit there and scold and say, bad sheep, bad sheep. No, that's not what he's going to say. He's going to rejoice. He's going to pick it up and put it on his shoulders. Why? Because it's lost. It's agitated. It doesn't know the way back. And so he's going to pick it up and he's going to carry it back. And when he brings it home, he's going to rejoice with his friends. And he's not going to shame the sheep and say, look what this stupid sheep did. Can you imagine how... You know, I went over hill, over dale, through briars to find this stupid sheep. He doesn't say that. He says, rejoice with me. I found my sheep. You see, if the good shepherd just considered a piece of meat, he should have left it out there. But he doesn't. He values the sheep as one of his own. And he extravagantly pursues it. And then Jesus pulls back the curtain of heaven. In verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. An amazing thought. The extravagant means he goes to. And, and, and just pointing out that the thought of shame. And I just want to put this in front of you. If this is how you relate to God. Because I, I think certainly when we've gone astray, when we have sinned, I think there should be a sense of remorse. But not in continual shame and beating up yourself. God rejoices over you. God rejoices over you. I'm going to say it again. God rejoices over over you. You need to let that sink in. You need to let that sink in. Because here's the thing. If your 
relationship with God is like the Pharisees, based on your ability to please God. And then you focus on just your failure, it's just going to end up in shame. You have to focus on what God has done to redeem you, to buy you back, that He rejoices over you. Again, His love is extravagant. And the question I I ask, are we in awe of the extravagant length that God goes to to pursue us? You know, here in the church, we tell so often the story of what it meant for God to put on flesh, to empty Himself from glory, to put on flesh, to be born, to be born into probably poverty, to live as a a Jewish peasant, to live this life, to be rejected by, you know, the religious leaders, to die a shameful, painful, humiliating death, and then to rise again from the dead. But those are the extreme measures that God goes to to seek us out. It's extravagant. I don't know if you've meditated on that, but it is is extravagant. Are we in awe of the extravagant links that God goes to? And number two, the other question I have for us is, do we rejoice in what God rejoices in? Do we rejoice in what God rejoices in? When somebody who's strayed away from God comes back, do we rejoice in that? Are we excited? Is it, is it what floats our boat? Or have we become so much about vengeance or even apathy that we've lost God's heart? That's what Jesus is trying to show us in this parable. And he's not done. He's got another one to show us here. God's heart relentlessly pursues us. Verse 8. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God. In the Greek, the word for the silver coin is drachma, which was basically the, the Greek version of, of the denarii. It was a day's wage. So let's just translate it into today's, today's you know, economy. Let's just say it's $100. It's $100, okay? And so this woman had 10 of these coins. She lost 10%. She lost $100. It was probably her life savings. And like me with the key fob, I'm telling you, if I lost $100, I'd be looking for it. I'd be on my hands and knees looking for it, searching to it, for it till I found it. This woman, she's in her house. She knows she's lost it in her house. This is a house probably built of stone or mud bricks, but it's probably, it's probably a dirt floor, right? It's probably maybe 10 by 10, 12 by 12. Not big, but it's still lost in the dirt somewhere. Probably has a door opening and maybe one window. There's not much light. She's got to light a lamp. Getting on her hands and knees and takes a broom and starts sweeping from one corner to another. She's going to find that lost coin. She's going to find that day's wage. 
because it's precious to her. And it's tedious. And it's frustrating because it's not coming. It's not being found. And you think about giving up. But when the coin is found, the frustrating and the tedious moves to joy. So much so that she wants to tell the neighbors, Look! I found my coin! I found my lost fob! There is a God who answers prayer. This is how God feels. This is how God feels when a sinner turns back to Him. When someone who's strayed from Him comes back to Him. Verse 10, In the same way, I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. God is relentless in pursuing those He's after. He's relentless. He's relentless toward people groups. You know, if you just read the whole book of Acts, you see how God is not satisfied with the gospel just coming to the Jewish nation. It spreads to the Gentiles, to the nations, to the Roman Empire. And it catches fire and affects the whole world. God is not satisfied with just a few sheep that he has. He wants to seek and save the lost. He is relentless. And even today, there are people who still have not heard the gospel in their own tongue. And God is relentless in pursuing those through Bible translations, through groups like like Tyndale, who are out there translating the Bible in languages that aren't even written in order that they might hear the gospel, they might hear the good news in their own tongue, in their own language, and they might respond to his invitation. God is relentless to people groups. But let me say this also. He is relentless in pursuing individuals. You see, there are people who have been exposed to the gospel, maybe even at one time walked with Jesus, and they walked away. But God is relentless in pursuing them even. And he does it through what I call the hound of heaven, through his Holy Spirit. He prompts them in that moment of like, you know you should turn back. You know that he wants you as his own. You know this life is heading toward destruction. He does it through his Holy Spirit. He does it through people who he points along the way and reminds them that God is pursuing them. I love the last words of Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. That that word pursue is like a posse that hounds you until it finds you. That is how God pursues relentlessly those who he is seeking. And maybe today, maybe today one of you knows that you have strayed from Jesus. You are doing, you've been doing your own thing. You're living in rebellion and I'm not here to shame you. I'm not here to point a bony, accusing finger. I'm here to say, Jesus wants you. He wants you to turn back to him. He wants you to repent that you might have life. That you might have life. And that he might rejoice over you. 
And maybe there's somebody in this room who's hearing this for the first time. You're figuring it out. You're figuring out that God did send His Son for me. That I might be reconciled to Him. That I might have life. Maybe for, for the first time you're understanding that you're getting that. Jesus has come to pursue you. He pursued you extravagantly. That you might be His. And that He might rejoice over you. And at the end of this, of this sermon, I, I would like to pray for you if you would pray with me. But here's the thing for all of us. Are we in awe of the extravagant and relentless lengths that God has gone to in sending a son for us? Are we in awe of that? You see, what this passage is showing us there is no dichotomy between the lost and the found per se. We all start out as lost without Jesus. And we're only found in Him. And two, there are no throwaways. There's no one, there's no one that God says, uh, no, I'm done with him. I'm done with her. There's no one who's gone too far that God's arm cannot reach. There are no throwaways, even though our society may say there are. And again, to be convinced that the gospel itself is extravagant. It's his extravagant heart for us. God doesn't say, well, they made their bed, they can lie in it. No, he comes and seeks us out with himself. Living this life. Dying for us. And then rising from the dead to give us victory. And last of all, and this is especially for those of us who have put our faith in Christ, who consider ourselves found, do we have God's heart? Do we have God's heart for the lost? Are we compelled by the grace that we have received, are we compelled by the love and the extravagant heart that God has for us that we, we've got to tell somebody else. We've got to tell someone else who is lost because we know what it's like to be in the darkness. And we don't, we don't save anybody, okay? You and I don't save anybody. There's only one Savior, it's Jesus. But we lead them to Him. Are we willing to search that person out? Somebody even in your own neighborhood, as we've talked about earlier this year. Are you still seeking to make that connection with that person that they might hear about Jesus? Whom might God be asking you to go to, to befriend, in order that they might hear the good news? of this God who seeks us out extravagantly and relentlessly. That's what God has for us who know Him. God's heart is amazingly extravagant for us. Let's take that in ourselves and let's tell a world that so desperately needs to hear about it. Let me pray and then have the worship team come and close us the worship song. And if you're a person today who is just realizing that Jesus has come to seek you, I just want to pray this prayer and I just would encourage you to pray it along with me. It's not magic words. It's just a prayer of a sincere heart that wants to respond to the gospel, the good news of Jesus. 
And so, Lord Jesus, I realize that I am lost. I realize I've done my own thing and rebelled against the Holy God. But I also realize that, God, you are the one who comes to seek and save me in Jesus. And, and Lord Jesus, that you died on the cross for me to take my penalty that I should have received. And you've given me life in yourself as I put my faith in you, as I trust that you have risen from the dead. Would you come into my life, into my heart? Make me yours. Make me your sheep. Make me your child. As your word promises, to as many as received him, even to those who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Lord, that is a promise that you've put out there. And I receive that today. And for the rest of us, God, I pray that your gospel will wreck us. I pray that it will dig down deep into our hearts for us to just realize how amazingly extravagant you've been, how even some people call you even reckless within that, to do that. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How relentless you pursued so many of us. Pursued us with your hounds of heaven. And Lord, and if there's somebody today that needs to repent to turn back to you, I pray that they would have the courage and the faith to do so even now. Because, Lord, you have the words of life. You are the way, the truth, and the life. Would you give them the courage to release what they've been holding on to thinking that they have life there, but knowing it really leads to destruction. Give them grace to trust you, Lord. And Lord, give us grace to make this good news known to a world that desperately needs it, Lord. So we're grateful for this illustration today. Keep us from being Pharisees. Keep us from being self-righteous. Keep us tender because you've come to seek and save us. And Lord Jesus, it's in your name I pray these things. Amen.